Right, friends, happy Memorial Day. Is everybody good? Fantastic. It's definitely Memorial Day. We are few, which means I can definitely see you. I may call on you by name. So just be prepared for that, and we'll do Bible trivia. It'll be fun. Just kidding. Let's pray, and we'll dive into God's Word. Lord, we love, we love your Word. We love what it teaches us about you. Um, We love your Word because we love you. And so we as a people want to be shaped into your image. We want to be like you. Uh, We want to live as you command us to live, not because you place heavy burdens upon us of rules we have to follow, but because in you is life and life to the full. And so we pray that you would open your word to us today, that you would, Lord Jesus, would you guard my mouth to speak what is true and right and helpful. And would you then take your word, plant it in our hearts that it might grow and produce a hundredfold in terms of righteousness and trust and love and joy and peace. We pray it, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are glad that you're here and we are starting a new series today. If you were with us last week, Jason, our youth pastor, high school pastor, just did a great job of kind of a standalone sermon on Romans chapter one. I don't know about you, but I was incredibly challenged to think about what it means to be uh, unashamed of the gospel, to be bold in my presentation of the gospel with others uh, and how I'm prone to sometimes shrink back. And so uh, if you didn't get a chance to listen to that, check it out online. It's, it's well worth your time. It's just a really good uh, unpacking of God's word. We are starting a new series today, and what we like to do in the summers is rather than work our way through a book sometimes where, you know, if you miss a couple weeks, you go on a vacation, you end up uh, behind the eight ball a little bit. You're like, oh, what did I miss? I got to go back and catch up. What we like to do is series where we know when you're going to be gone, you'll miss some weeks, and then you're able to just pick right back up, and where each week can kind of stand on its own very easily. You won't feel like you fall behind when you're gone on family vacations, that sort of thing. So Here's what we're going to do. We are going to spend the next 10 weeks talking about 10 character traits that we believe are absolutely crucial for every follower of Jesus to acquire, to take into their life. Now, you remember that our mission statement is to seek the good of the West Shore, that Jeremiah 29, 7 idea. Seek the good of the place where you've been planted. So seek the good of the West Shore through deep truth, deep lives, and deep love for the glory of Christ. Now, the, the beginning and the end of that is pretty is simple enough, right? God's placed us in a certain context, and he said, I want you to be a a people who, for my glory, cause the place where you live to thrive and for people to flourish in that context. And the gospel is what actually ultimately causes that. But the question then is, well, how is that accomplished? And I don't know if you've known, if you've noticed, but in the mission statement of the church, we've snuck in to the middle of that mission statement uh, how we think that's accomplished through deep truth, deep lives, and deep love. What that means is this, church. It means that we don't think that the mission of the church is accomplished by the church having great programs, or by having good preaching, or by having good music. All those things are nice, they're fine. But ultimately, the mission of the church is accomplished by God's people becoming people of deep truth and deep lives and deep love. In other words, people who, deep truth is, people who know what they believe and why they believe it, who can give a reason for the hope that they have and know how to nuance the uh, the understanding of their belief into the cultural context where you can explain why you think what you think and why the Bible says what it says about things. We, We want to be people of deep truth who know what we believe and why we believe it. We want to be people of deep lives who aren't just people who have beliefs that we hold on to, but whose lives then are shaped by those beliefs, right? There's enough hypocrisy in the world and in the church in particular. We don't want to be people who claim to believe something, but whose lives don't bear that out. And so we want to be people whose lives align with what we believe. That's the deep lives part. Our character is shaped by the gospel. And then lastly, our actions are shaped by the gospel, that we are people of deep love, that our actions are marked characterized by all that God has done for us in the cross of Jesus Christ, that we are fully satisfied in him and our lives display that. 
So when we say deep truth, deep lives, deep love as a church, that's what we mean. People whose beliefs, character, and actions are shaped by the gospel and by what God has done. We think that is mission critical for us. In other words, if we can't become those kinds of people who are increasingly marked by these things, then we have no hope of accomplishing our mission. Everybody follow that? That's pretty straightforward. It's pretty simple, right? And so what we're going to do these 10 weeks over the summers, we're going to just take each week and focus on the character traits that we've identified that we think every mature follower of Jesus needs to be growing into. And let me tell you what those 10 are. The next 10 weeks, we'll be talking about the character trait of love. That's today. We're going to talk about what does it mean to be a person whose character is marked by love. Faithfulness, trust, perseverance, holiness, thankfulness, Christ-centeredness, forgiveness, humility, and repentance. Now, obviously, there's a lot more character traits the Bible speaks about that we're meant to acquire, but as a church, we've identified those 10 as crucial, we think, to carrying the mission of the gospel forward in our cultural context. So, you know, if you got those down, you can skip the next 10 weeks. You're good. (laughs) The rest of us will show up. So... Here's what we're going to do each week as we come together over the next 10 weeks. We're just going to try and answer the question, how do I become blank? How do I become this week loving? How do I grow in becoming a loving person? Next week we'll talk about how do I become faithful? How do I grow in in an expression of faithfulness? So that's what we're going to try and do. Now what we're going to do today in order to unpack that idea of how do I become loving, like how do I actually acquire a character that is marked by love, what we're going to do is we're going to look at three stories in the Bible of uh, these happen to all be men, three men who were not loving at the beginning of the story. And at the end of the story, they are transformed into people who know how to love and who are on that journey of becoming loving people. I think there's some things to gain from that, to learn from that. So, but before we do that, before we get to those stories, what I want to make one point before we do that, and it's this. Uh, I want to root it in Exodus chapter 34. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open up to Exodus chapter 34. We're going to look at a few verses there. Uh, we'll throw them up on the screens too if you don't have your Bible with you. The first point I want to make is this, is that it's not enough just to do loving things. We must acquire a loving nature or a loving character. So in other words, when we say that over the next 10 weeks we're going to be talking about how we can become people who are loving or people who are faithful or people who are perseverant. What we're getting at is not just people who perform actions that are loving or actions that are faithful. That's good, by the way. It's not bad to perform actions that display love even when you don't feel like it. That's demonstrating self-control. It's demonstrating a desire to be obedient to God. That's, I don't mean to demean that. I mean to say that's a good thing. But ultimately, it's not what we're after. You know that, right? We're not after just right actions. What we're after is a right heart that would produce right actions. How many of you have, have felt that moment where you knew you needed to love but did not find in yourself a heart that wanted to love? Awesome. Some of you are willing to be honest. That's good. Fantastic. Absolutely. I was thinking about this. And Exodus 34 is going to help us understand this because what we're going to see in Exodus 34 is the very nature of God. Ultimately, if you want to become a more loving person, here's the key to the whole thing. You need to understand the love of God. That's really simple, right? But it's true. If you want to become a person who is loving, the the way to do that is to understand not just that God loves you, but with what type of love God loves you. Does that make sense? 
What is the nature of the love that God pours out over you and onto you and into you? If you want to become loving, you have to ultimately be shattered by the love that God gives. And in order to be shattered by the love that God gives, you have to understand what type of love he gives. That it's not a mere sentimentality that the world would sort of offer as love. This idea of just being so emotionally compelled by someone that you just can't help yourself. You just love them and you're overwhelmed with passion for them. That's just really sentimentality and it tends not to last. But there's another view of love that is sort of cold. It's just the commitment of the will, right? It's like, I, I love you and I'm committed to you and I will display my love in sort of a cool, calculated commitment of the will to you. And God's love is, is not those things. It is a commitment of the will and it is a, a passionate love and affection, emotional uh, feeling towards his people. But it is not either one of those things. It is both of those things always and perfectly. And we'll see that when we look at Exodus chapter 34. So let's read it together. Verses five through seven, they say this. Now this is, just to set the background here, this is Moses who has gone up on the mountain, received the 10 commandments from God on Mount Sinai. He's come down. He has seen that the people were worshiping an idol. And so he, in anger, throws the tablets down. Now he's gotta go back and have that interesting conversation with God. Remember those tablets you gave me, God? I'm gonna need some more. Um, right? Because I managed to break those. And so he's now back up on the mountain. He's received the second set of Ten Commandments, uh, the same as the first set of Ten Commandments, uh, received those, and now the Lord is going to have a conversation with Moses. And here's what he says. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Okay, now that's important. What, what's, what we've just been told is what is going to follow now is God talking about himself. So God is going to tell us his name, if you will. He's going to tell us who he is. This is the text that is most quoted in the New Testament and even in the Old too, when someone is describing who God is. This Exodus 34, 5 through 7, you'll find it again and again in the New Testament when someone is saying, who is God? And they will quote this text. So verse 6 says this, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Okay. So I said that in order to understand, in order to become loving, we have to understand what God's love is like. And the first thing that we see about God's love from this description is that it is God's very nature to love. Now, here's what I mean by that. I mean that it's not something outside of God, which he must acquire and then demonstrate, but that love flows from God that it is, it is his very nature to demonstrate love. And as I said, not maybe perhaps sort of a, a mere sentimentality as we've imagined love or as many in our society and day and age imagine love and not just a mere uh, cold commitment of the will, but something very different than that. Now we could go, in fact, I rewrote this sermon last night. I had something very different in mind and then I just did a total 180. So our tech crew is awesome because they've kept up with all the changes here. 
But I had in mind just literally walking us through all these different places where we understand what God's love is like. And it's well worth your time, by the way, to do that. Uh, it's transformative. It's changing. But the one thing that I wanted to point out about the nature of God's love, about what his love is like, is that it pours out of his nature. And the reason that's important to know is this. is because it's not something outside of him that he must acquire. He will never run out of it because it pours out of who he is. And the reason we can say God's love never ends, the reason we can say God's love is everlasting, it's steadfast, it doesn't waver or wane. The reason we can say that is because it's God's nature to love. And because it's his nature to love, he both defines what love is and also never runs out of supply. Does that make sense? That's incredibly important to understand and to remember. Okay, so... That's what we're seeing here. But you notice that the definition of love might be a little different than how our society defines it. Because I don't know if you notice, it starts out with really great stuff. I mean, God is saying, calling himself, he said, the Lord is filled with steadfast love, right? That's, that's good news. And he forgives. He forgives iniquity. He forgives sin. That was verse 6. And so you think that's awesome. But I don't know if you notice where he transitioned at the end. Then he says, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And he visits the iniquity or the punishment for sin on the third and fourth generation to the children's children. And you're thinking, well, wait, which is it? Do you forgive or do you punish down through the generations? I mean, what I, you, this should be confusing to us, yes? Why are you, and you're saying in one breath, God, I am, I am a God who forgives and filled with steadfast love. And at the same time, you're saying, but I'm a God who punishes iniquity and sin. And there's a tension there because we might be prone to look at it and say, okay, well, God is either schizophrenic, he doesn't know who he is, or he's hypocritical. He's saying one thing and then immediately saying the other thing. But both of these things are true about God. God is just and righteous and will punish sin. He is holy and he never just winks at sin. He never just says, ah, oh, it doesn't matter. In fact, the cross of Jesus makes no sense if God can just wink at sin. Why would you punish your son for the sins of the world if you didn't need to do that to redeem the world? The fact that there was a penalty means there was a problem. And so we begin to, we begin to unfold and understand the very meaning of or the very reason for the, the cross to occur because God in one breath says, I am filled with steadfast love. I am forgiving. And in the very same breath, he says, and I punish sin. And so we begin to look and we see that God's perfect justice and righteousness and God's perfect love can only be satisfied in the cross of his son where he punishes sin, but doesn't punish the one who committed sins, punishes his son on behalf of them. And then he satisfies his love to redeem a people for himself. It's why the cross of Christ is the most profound act that's ever occurred in all of human history because in it, the perfect justice and righteousness of God and the perfect love of God are fully satisfied and nothing else can do that. Now, that's just a, that's just a toe in the water of what it means to begin to comprehend God's ro- just deep, profound love, that it is not some silly movie version of love that is filled with mere sentimentality but that it is rich and deep 
you and I could spend eternity probing the depths of God's love and we would never comprehend it fully. And the, good, the thing that's so good about that is that as you and I know that we need to grow in becoming loving and we understand that understanding God's love is the pathway to actually becoming a loving person, the good news of not being able to comprehend God's love ever completely is that I will always have more to uncover, which means I will always have more ammunition that will fuel my growth in becoming a loving person. I will never find the day where I will wake up and go, I have fully comprehended God's love, so I guess all the resources I now have are exhausted for becoming more loving. So today when I fail to love, when I do something that's unkind, when I do something that's not loving as I should, I guess I'm just out of resources. I've, I've topped out as it comes to loving. That, that's true for me. I don't know about you guys, right? That day will never come because we'll never exhaust in comprehension God's love. And that's far from being like daunting or being unsettling. What that should be is comforting. It should be as delighting. You go, oh, his love is incomprehensible. All right, so here's all we've discovered so far is that it's God's nature to love with a love that's more profound than any worldly definition, right? Let me point you to a good resource along these lines uh, in terms of reading about, thinking about the love of God. This is a book by D.A. Carson, just a little 90-pager called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And I highly encourage you to pick it up. You can read it in a day, really. Uh, but it is just a fantastic read on what it means to, un, to, to discover what God's love is like and where it's aimed and how it makes its way to us. And it's just a good meditation on God's love. So now, let's have a little story time, shall we? Can we have story time? All right, so let's look at these stories. Let's look first at Luke chapter 15. If you got your Bibles, flip over there with me. We're gonna look at what's probably a pretty familiar story. Not even if you've never been in church before, you've probably heard some inkling of the story of the prodigal son. It's relatively culturally popular. I'm just gonna look at verses 11 through 24. And they say this. We're just gonna focus on the, the younger son. Jesus talking says, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them, uh, meaning the older son and the younger son. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the, the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. 
So Jesus tells this story, this parable, uh, which, again, you're probably familiar with. He tells it as a demonstration of what God's love is like. And it would have been shocking in, his, in this day and age, Jesus is telling, to think of a, of a Jewish father running, girding up his, his garments to run to his son who has left and squandered his inheritance. I mean, the thing you might need to know as background for the story is when the son leaves and asks for the father's inheritance, according to Jewish law, he was not going to get all the inheritance he could have gotten until the... Uh, if he had waited till the father died. So an inheritance is meant to be received when, it, when someone dies and they pass on an inheritance. But this son has said to his father, essentially, in other words, he has said to him, you are better off dead than alive to me. You're more valued to me dead than alive. I would just rather have the inheritance that you give me. By the way, the land that that younger son would inherit, he can't sell it for all that it's worth in order to go off into this foreign land. He's gonna have to sell it for about half of what it's worth because whoever he sells it to can't take possession of it until the father dies. And so he's getting less than his inheritance is actually worth, but he is so committed to getting out from underneath his father's house that he says, I don't care. Give me my inheritance now. I'll take half what it's worth because I just want to get away. In essence, he's saying to his father, I wish you were dead. Now, father's in the room. Can you imagine what that feels like? That's a painful moment. And so the question that I want us to examine then is, how does the prodigal son go from essentially saying, I hate you, you're better off dead to me, to then coming back to the moment where he is at the feet of his father saying, essentially, forgive me. And I think ultimately the transition for this son happens, the transition for this son happens when he begins to understand how undeserved the love he has received is. That he does not deserve the love he receives, that he's unworthy. Now there's two things there to identify, okay? The first is this. He begins to love when he knows how much he is forgiven, that he is forgiven much. Now, both these things, this, and then the next thing that he understands is not just that he's forgiven much, right? That's where you start. I have much of which I need to be forgiven. And then when that forgiveness comes, we begin to understand that the love that we have been given, we are not worthy of. Both those things are counterintuitive. We tend to want to believe both that we are worthy of love uh, and also that the forgiveness that we need is minor, we tend to want to paint our sins, our difficulties, our rebellion against God as minor things and therefore things that God could simply overlook. But my friends, I want you to understand if you want to become a loving person, the pathway to becoming loving is not found through minimizing the forgiveness that you need or your undeservedness of God's love. The pathway to becoming a loving person is actually understanding what a great act of love it is on God's behalf to love you and how much he has forgiven you. Both of those things will cause your heart to be flooded with love when you begin to believe. That's what happens to the son. He begins to understand for the first time what he has done. He wakes up and he heads back to the father's house. He doesn't even think he can be taken in as a son anymore. He just thinks, I'll go back as a servant. Maybe he'll take me in. And he confesses, I was wrong. I was so wrong, I don't deserve to be taken back as a son now, don't you imagine then that moment when the father says, you are my son, kill the fattened calf, put the ring on his finger, cover him in the cloak. He is overwhelmed by mercy in that moment, overwhelmed by the love of the father in that moment. And what is so overwhelming? Because he didn't sin that much and, and he probably deserved to be taken back as a son. Do you think that's what made him so loving? I think what made him so loving is that he understood exactly what he had been forgiven, how great the problem was. Friends, we live in a day and an age where you know, 
in an older day, in an ancient time, when you said to people, God loves you, it would have floored them. Because if you said God is just and God is holy, they would have said absolutely. But to say God loves you personally, individually, God loves you, that would have been astounding. But we've kind of flipped that in our day and age. You know, if you say to someone now, hey, God loves you, the response to that is usually, well, of course he does. And usually it's because we're saying, well, because that's just, he's loving, so of course he loves. God is so loving, he's just, and the definition of this, he'll just overlook anything that I've done wrong. But also, because if we're honest, there's this subtle part of us that thinks, well, yeah, I'm kind of lovable. Right? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. And you've heard, right? We've probably said that before. Like, I, I've been pretty good. Right? On what grounds should God love you? I've been pretty good. That's not the pathway to becoming a loving person. The pathway to becoming a loving person is understand that you were not worthy of God's love. And in spite of that reality, he loved you. The cross, the power of the cross is an understanding that it was unmerited and that God freely chose to love. We love him because he first, what? Loved us. That's the power that's able to make you loving. Think about, there's a great demonstration of this. There's a great illustration of it. This idea of knowing that we're forgiven much and how it makes us loving. Uh, Victor Hugo's Les Mis. Anybody seen it or read it? The book's like 900 pages. Don't read it. It's like 200 pages of French history at the beginning. Snoozer, all right? But the musical's awesome and the movie's awesome, right? So there you go. This is the only time I'll ever tell you don't read the book, watch the movie. So Les Mis, there's this great scene in Les Mis and every time I watch it, it just gets me. I don't know if you remember, Jean Valjean is the main character. He's been in prison for 19 years for stealing bread to feed his family. He's been under the lash and in the galley and driven to hard labor. He is a hardened man. And when he gets out, he can't find any work. He can't find anywhere to sleep. He can't find anyone to get food from. He is without hope. And he parks himself on a bench outside of a monastery and a bishop walks up and says, come in, come in. Inside there is food to feed you and make you strong. There is a fire to warm you. It's cold. There's a bed to sleep in to restore your strength until morning. Come, come and receive. And he does. He's a guest in a, in a humble bishop's monastery. There's not much there, but they do have silver and they feed him on that silver. And in the night, Jean Valjean, rather than enjoying his night's sleep, gets up, steals the silver, thinking this is how I'll make my way. This is how I will have something to call my own. He heads out of the monastery in the middle of the night. Early the next morning, he's been caught by the police. He's brought back, bag full of silver in hand, cuffs on his hands. One word from the bishop will send him back to the galley. One word will send him back to servitude for the rest of his life. The police officer looks at the bishop and says, he had the nerve to say that you gave it to him. Bishop looks at the police officer, looks at Valjean, looks back at the police officer, back at Valjean and says, of course I gave it to him. But I'm very angry at you, Valjean. Did you forget the candlesticks that I also gave you? Puts him in the bag. The police are flabbergasted. They can't understand it. Valjean's face drops. He doesn't know what to think of this moment. He's never received such mercy. No one's ever forgiven. Only the lash Only justice, never mercy. And Valjean is transformed in a moment by the forgiveness of the bishop, who then tells him he's purchased his soul. That's not good theology, by the way. (laughs) 
but it's a great line. <laughs> I have purchased your soul for God. It's powerful. Valjean's a changed man. He goes on to save the lives of many and care deeply. He becomes a loving man when he had been a man of anger and a man of vengeance and a broken man. And I don't know if you remember, there's a scene later in the, in the musical where Valjean is debating whether or not he will reveal that he is the criminal Valjean and not this other life that he's gone on to lead. Someone else is being accused in his place and will go to prison for him. And he kneels to pray to talk to God and say, what must I do? And when he kneels to pray, what is standing on the altar on either side of the place where he prays? The candlesticks. The candlesticks. And Valjean, in a great act of love, moves forward and says, this man is not guilty. I am guilty. Yeah, go watch Les Mis. What a demonstration of when you know you're forgiven much, you become a loving person. Second part of that is, is it's, you know, it's counterintuitive. We tend to want to believe that we're pretty lovable and that that's why we should be loved. But I want you to understand that's false ground to stand on. Elizabeth Barrett Browning in one of her sonnets to Robert Browning, it was actually never meant to be published, but you all know Elizabeth Barrett Browning, the, the poet, the sonnet writer. Okay, awesome, I'm alone, good. Me and Elizabeth and Robert. It's flowery language, but listen, listen to what she says. This is to her husband and what she says about how she wishes he would love her. She says, If thou must love me, let it be for naught, except for love's sake only, do not say. I love her for her smile, her looks, her way, of speaking gently for a trick of thought that falls in well with me and certs brought a sense of pleasant ease on such a day, for these things in themselves, beloved, may be changed or changed for thee, and love so wrought may be unwrought so. And then later she says, love me for love's sake. See what she's saying? She's saying to her husband, don't love me because I'm smart or pretty or because you delight in my sense of humor. Love me for love's sake because all of those things may change. I may not be funny someday. I may not be beautiful someday. In fact, I probably will not be beautiful someday. I may not be all the things that you love me for. Love me for love's sake. Not because I'm worthy to be loved. It's a great expression of the idea. It's firm ground to stand on when we know we're loved freely by God, not because we're worthy of love or desirable to be loved, but because he chooses to love. And in the nature of God is the confidence that he will never change. Remember this, church. Everything that God is, he is always and perfectly. Everything God is, he is always and he is perfectly. In other words, his love never wanes, it never flickers. It never moves up, it never moves down. His love is constant and perfect. And he will never cease to be loving. God is holy, he is light and he will never cease to be holy and he will never cease to be light because everything that God is, he is always and he is perfectly. What a great ground to place your hope of being loved on, right church? The nature of God, the goodness and unchangeableness of God is your hope for being loved and therefore for becoming a loving person, not your goodness, which is prone to wonder and wane. Next story, just flip a few pages over, Luke chapter 19. This is the story of Zacchaeus. So if you grew up in church, you heard this one, and you knew that Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a, and he climbed up in a 
awesome. If you don't know what we just said because you didn't grow up at church, you are cooler than we are. Here's what Luke 19 says. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Here's what I want you to see in this story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a traitor. He has betrayed his people. He is working for the Roman government who has conquered the nation of Israel. So his people already don't like him. And not only that, but he makes money through extortion. He essentially skims off the top. He is a very unliked man, right? Zacchaeus is not one who knows how to love and he's not one who is loved by his people. That's where Zacchaeus starts. What does Jesus do that causes Zacchaeus to be transformed in an afternoon. Now we could say, well, it's similar to the prodigal son. It seems like Jesus is entering his house and he's forgiving him, but we don't see anywhere in there where Jesus pronounces forgiveness, do we? We can presume it probably occurs, but what's really important to point out, the transformation that Luke wants us to see happens because Jesus goes into his house, because Jesus chooses to come near to Zacchaeus to say, let me be with you, let me spend time with you. You see, it's one thing to know that we're forgiven and that produces a powerful love within us and an ability to love. But it's another thing, in addition to knowing that we're forgiven, to know that God doesn't just forgive us and then stand at a distance from us, but God says, I will come and make my home with you. In fact, he says, I'll place my spirit within you. I'll call your body a temple of the Holy Spirit because I'm going to dwell there in you. How about John chapter 14, verses one through three, where Jesus says, I'm gonna go now and I'm gonna make a home for you in the heavens. And I will, I, if it weren't so, I wouldn't have told you. I'm gonna make a home that where I am, you may what? Also be. I want you to dwell eternally with me. Think about the goodness of that. God does not redeem us and then stand at a distance from us. He says, I will come and make my home with you. Now, when you begin to understand that, it begins to inform your understanding of what God's love is like. And it causes you to say, oh my goodness, I'm loved with a profound love because everywhere I go, God goes with me. Not in the sense of just him being omniscient. That's true. He's everywhere present, right? He's, he is God and therefore everywhere he is. But that's not the kind of presence Jesus is talking about here or that the gospel writer Luke is talking about when he's demonstrating the story for us. What he's saying is Jesus is with you in a personal, individual, relational way, not just in an omniscient God is everywhere kind of a way. There is never a moment in your entire life if you are in Christ that you will be absent from the presence of God. Think about that for a moment. Everywhere you go, every moment, whether you're asleep or awake, every breath you draw, you draw in the presence of a God who loves you. 
and, it's, and shows that love by being present with you in that place, right? You would doubt someone's love if they said, I love you, and then never spent time with you, right? I love you, and I'm never going to talk to you. But to say, I'm going to move towards you. I'm going to make my home with you. That's the profoundness of the Zacchaeus story, is that we're seeing that God's love that is communicated to Zacchaeus. And it transforms him into a loving person because he understands that God's love has caused God to make his home with him, for Jesus to come in and make a, make a home with him. Now, here's what that means for us, by the way. By implication for us, it's this. If God's love is the kind of love that says, I will come and make my home with you, then we should have homes that are open to people who are far from God. And we should also be in the homes of people who are far from God. Notice that the really religious hoity-toity people had a real problem with Jesus going into Zacchaeus' house. And Jesus doesn't listen to him for a second. I wonder if we would have gone into Zacchaeus' house. I mean, Jesus didn't even wait for an invitation. He just invited himself. But I wonder if, we, if Zacchaeus had said, would you come to my home? If we would have said, I'm not sure I belong there. Or if we would have said, absolutely, I will come and be present with you. Because the king of the universe says he'll come and be present with you. If you'll turn to him. Makes you a loving person when you understand that God makes his home with you. The last thing is this. We learn to love when we see God's hand in our hardships. And I'm just going to point you to Joseph's story now. I'm not going to tell you the whole thing because it's Genesis chapter 37 to Genesis chapter 50. So it's a long story. But the thing to, to know about Joseph's story is that Joseph is really just a punk at the beginning. You all remember that, right? He's telling his brothers, y'all are going to bow down to me. There's not a brother on the planet that's going to take that well. Right, that is a, you're getting a good beating if you, if you say that to your brother, especially if you're on the younger end of the scale of all the brothers. Like that's a horrible decision. If you have 11 siblings, you say, you will all bow down to me. I'm gonna beat the tar out of you right now. <laughs> His brothers hate him. They sell him into slavery, tell dad that he's been killed by wild animals. I don't know if you remember this, right? Joseph is then uh, carted off into slavery, is falsely accused of something he didn't do, spends time in prison, thinks he's gonna get out at one point when he interprets a dream for some people who then quickly forget about him. He languishes in prison for many more years, then is released, ultimately ends up saving the entire Egyptian empire and his own family by storing up grain and overseeing and managing the, the produce of Egypt at a time when famine comes into the land. And what's so interesting is then his brothers end up coming before him. Now you would think this is payback time, right? This is the moment where payback will come. And yet Joseph has been turned into from, from young punk who thought he was something special to a loving man. And look at what he says in Genesis chapter 50, verses 20 through 21, just two verses here. He says, as for you, talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. He's talking about you know, his job and harvesting all the grain as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. So rather than exercising revenge and saying, get out of my sight, you sold me into slavery, you abused me, you treated me poorly, and now you're gonna pay the price. You're gonna starve to death because I'm giving you nothing. Rather than doing that, he says, no, no, I will provide for you. What enables Joseph to perform that act of love? Did you see what it was in the verses before? He sees God's sovereign loving hand, even in his hardships. He says, you intended it for evil, 
but God meant it for good. Now, when he says that, what he's not saying is, you did an evil thing and God took advantage of it and turned it into something good. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, you had a purpose that was evil and you were responsible for that purpose, but God, even through your evil, had a plan. He was sovereign over it. He intended it to happen. All my hardship was intended by God. And he brought about its purposes. This is what we call the doctrine of compatibility. The doctrine of compatibility says that God is sovereign over all things that occur and that human beings are responsible for their actions. And that those two things are not contradictory of one another. They are compatible with one another. The idea of a sovereign God who causes and rules over all things and yet human beings being held responsible and accountable for what they do. The doctrine of compatibility in one verse is Genesis chapter 37, verses 20 and 21. You intended it for evil. God meant it for good. My friends, this is how you love your enemy. This is how you love those that are unlovely. Is you understand that even in your hardships, God's love was on display and it works. So we must begin to identify how texts like Romans 8, 28, for God, um, God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. How is it that even in our suffering, even in our hardship, God's love is on display, not, not necessarily just his justice or his discipline or whatever else may be on display, his holiness, but that God's love is manifesting itself and making its way to us even through hardship. That's what Joseph understands and that's what causes him to be able to love his brothers rather than to seek revenge against his brothers. So if we're to become loving people, one of the things that we must do is we must begin to understand where God's hand is even in our hardships. And that it's not just a hand of uh, stern discipline, but that it's a hand of love that's upon us. It's a hand of love that's upon us. So friends, as I said, we want to every week come and examine uh, how we acquire these character traits, how we acquire the attributes of God into our own lives. And so we'll examine those week to week. My hope, my prayer is that we would be a church that is marked, again, it's not enough just to be people who commit actions of love, but people who are at our very core loving people, that God would transform us that way. And he is able to do it. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in the lives of, of countless others. He is able to take our capacity to love, which may be like this, and extend it to make it like this. Don't you want to see God extend your capacity to love? Give you a heart that grows, like uh, what's the, the Grinch, right? His heart grew three sizes. God does that. He grows hearts in capacity to love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for your word. Pray that you would take it now and apply it to our lives. Let it just settle in. It's your word that has power not any human words. And so we pray that you would take it and bury it deep within our hearts, that we'd hear these stories, the story of Joseph, the story of Zacchaeus, the story of the prodigal, and that we would ponder them, meditate upon them, consider how you transform us through them. We thank you that you are able to make us loving, and we pray that you would. Give us that gift of the Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.